It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. On Stacey Berman's website, she has this great phrase that I thought was a lovely point to start off today, which is that disconnection is symptomatic of modern life, but not necessary. And something actually that I've been thinking a lot about, Stacey, I have noticed within myself a yearning to feel connected, not only to myself, not only to people that I know personally, intimately, my close circle of friends and family, but I really want to have more connection with the rest of the world as much as possible. And I think that's what led me to get so involved in social media and led me to do things like podcasts and video projects and ways that I can really reach other people. But the downside is that a lot of those methods of trying to connect with others have actually led me to feel more disconnected because of the way that a lot of those platforms are currently set up. I think they've brought up within us so much comparison. They've brought up within us maybe seeing things about ourselves that we might not have seen were we not to spend so much time online. (laughs) I think mainly the comparison trap leads us to compare ourselves constantly But I feel like we're also comparing ourselves to our past selves. We have photos from the past on social media that we might refer back to or or other people might see and bring up to us. And the disconnection is a bit heartbreaking for me because it feels like we're all kind of yearning for more connection. And yet the way that so many of us have found ourselves online recently, it's like simultaneously leading us down almost like a maze, I feel like. Like we're all trying to find the part of the maze that feels like we've completed something, we felt successful, but we find ourselves constantly hitting dead ends. It's like, oh, I thought I was on my way towards a certain point, but actually I hit another dead end and I have to turn around and try again over and over again. That's the first time that visuals come to mind for me, but I know that that also ties into a lot of your work where you are supporting people and shifting their self-perception. So I'm excited to dive into this from a lot of different levels. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it as well. Yeah, I think self-perception is such an integral part of how we interact with ourselves and the world and with people and with our God or spirit or universe or whatever you want to call that. And really what I find is that, was it, it's the quote, Buddha says, your mind makes the world or something. I'm not quoting Buddha exactly. (laughs) But before your mind creates the world, the world creates your mind, right? Your brain literally develops in relationship to things around you, to your caregivers, to your friends, to your family, to culture, to society, to media. Those things are shaping your self-perception. I mean, we could just take a look outside. We could take a look at any social media, anything, and we can see, oh, wow, that's 
if we don't like what we see on social media in general, not specifically about ourselves, I mean, it might be specifically about ourselves, but if we don't like what we're seeing on social media, well, guess what? That's an input that's affecting your nervous system. That's affecting the way you interact with yourself and the world. So I think it's a really important self-perception is a very important tool to work on if you do want to feel that connection. Does that all make sense? It does. And I'm curious how you perceive social media on, on that note, given that it can lead us to get in some of these mental traps. Do you find yourself falling into the comparison trap based on all of the work that you've been doing, which feels very rooted in being present and tuned into yourself? Do you still feel the pull of the comparison trap when you go online? So I think I'm lucky. I say I'm lucky because I am 46 now. So I grew up without having, I mean, I don't even have a phone, never mind social media. But I do remember as a teenager and a young adult, that comparison trap. And now on social media, it's like kind of but the curtains have been pulled where I know this is fake. Like we all know it's fake. Like even if it's a beautiful person, whether or not they're beautiful, whatever, that's all subjective anyway. But we also know that there are filters, like we actually know this is not true. So in a lot of ways, I feel like, again, I was blessed because I wasn't raised with the social media thing being a thing. So I didn't have that to contend with. And also I'm old enough for all the work I've done, <laughs> knock on wood, to not really fall into that trap. However, I do find it interesting, and I shared this uh, a little bit with you before we started, that I've had eating disorder as a, I mean, I don't think you ever not have it. <laughs> you just get better at dealing with it. And I've also had body dysmorphia issues. And just recently, and when I say recently, three weeks ago, I do Muay Thai and I was having a conversation with my coach and he was showing me one of the women in the gym was doing this exercise, blah, blah, blah. And I was just watching her. And then he asked me something about her body type. And he was like, you guys are the same body type. And I was like, huh, really? And he's like, yeah, why? You don't think you are. And I was like, well, I have a body, like in my head, I'm much, much bigger than her. And he was like, no, you guys are the same size. And I was like, wow, it's so interesting to see that comparison. So that has happened for me. The thing now for me anyway, is that I don't allow it to, or not that I don't allow it. It doesn't have the emotional charge for me anymore. So like if I gain five pounds, then I'm just like, oh, I've gained five pounds. I mean, I don't even weigh myself, so I don't actually know, <laughs> but I gained five pounds, but I'm not like emotionally charged by it. I just say, okay, maybe I want to work out. Maybe I don't want to eat pizza so much, like whatever it is, but it's not emotionally charged in the same way as it used to be. I feel like I just went off on a tangent. So excuse me. <laughs> I love tangents. So tangent away. And I can really relate to that too. I find myself thinking almost another comparison here as like, oh, I, I would love to get to a point where I don't feel that emotional charge. And I think it's an evolution, right? Because to your point, I don't know if we ever fully heal from something like a diseting order, <laughs> an eating disorder. <laughs> I see it just kind of evolving and maybe shedding some layers, but there's always that scar there, that reminder for me. And I think a lot of others, and sometimes I just, I used to think that having an eating disorder was kind of rare. And then social media has me wondering, wow, who doesn't have an eating disorder? That's actually one side of social media that's really interesting because it 
simultaneously reminds me that I'm not alone, but then it skews perceptions of things like that where also the conversations have shifted. When I used to talk about my disordered eating 10 years ago on YouTube, it was seen as kind of a rare thing. And now it's like, I feel like every woman is kind of talking about it on one level or another and it comes up a lot and there's so much awareness and that's exciting. But I also sometimes find it more confusing because I'm thinking, wow, like, is it a needing disorder if everybody's gone through it? If we're all struggling with it, where does the word disorder even fit in anymore? And sometimes that makes it hard to, especially if you feel like your identity or your sense of kind of not a resume, but like when I think about the stages that I've gone through in life, my disordered eating feels like a very prominent place in my past, right? And then sometimes when I hear other people talking about something as if, oh yeah, everybody goes through this, I think, wow, like was that as big of a a landmark if it's so common or is this kind of a rite of passage, if that makes sense? Like, wow, what if many of us are going through this thinking that we're alone, thinking that something's wrong with us, but it's slowly being revealed that a lot of these things are perhaps even universal and we're just having the nuances of our own experiences with that. I think when we look at any sort of quote unquote disorder, right? I'm putting them in air quotes because first of all, I don't want to say no one is disordered. (laughs) These are just symptoms of deeper things that we need to work on, but it's not a disorder, right? This is just a symptom of something deeper. And so we can look at eating disorder, right? But we could also look at other types of coping strategies because in the end, the eating disorder is a coping strategy, right? It's a way to either soothe us. It's a way to control things. It's a way to make us feel better in some way, right? If I lose five pounds, then I'm more worthy in some way, right? So it's not a disorder. It's as I look at it now, it's just a signal that your body is in some way either feeling like it's not safe, feeling like it's not enough, feeling like it's not worthy. And then instead of following the trajectory of what a normal, let's say, eating disorder is, whether it's overeating or undereating or somewhere in between, then we could start addressing the real root of it, which is, okay, there's a part of you that doesn't feel like it's worthy. Well, how do we get that part of you to start feeling like it's worthy then? So that's how I kind of look at this. And back to your point, which is that it is universal. And if we look at any person on this earth, I've never met or seen or read about any person on this earth who doesn't have something. It may not translate as an eating disorder, but it can come out in so many different ways. The root of it is the same. You're scared. You don't feel like you're enough. You don't feel like you're worthy. You don't feel like you're smart enough. You feel like you're too much or whatever it is. So that root is universal. Whatever that thing is, is universal. It's just the different ways that it comes out for us. I love the way that you phrase that. And it reminded me of something else that you said before we started recording, which was that a lot of us have this idea that we will feel better when X happens, right? Like to your point, this idea of I will feel better when I lose weight, I will feel better when I've reached this level of perceived success, I will feel better when I have this amount of money. 
And I want to go back to your point on that instead of summarizing it, because you had a really beautiful way of talking about how we're not not ever going to get there if we are always focused on the future. Is that right? So (laughs) remind me of how you phrase that. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I mean, I'll give it to you also in like from a nervous system perspective, if we're always putting the goalpost here, I will feel better when I'm a size of X, or I will feel better when I lose this amount of weight, or I will feel better when I make this much amount of money. What we're doing is we're training our nervous system to always scan for what's wrong in an attempt to get to our perceived what's right. Except what we've now done is we've trained our brain to constantly look for what's wrong. So even if we get to this size or weight or level of income, our nervous system is still designed to keep looking for what's wrong because we've not readjusted it at all. So basically, we're always just putting the goalpost beyond where we are right now, and we never actually feel happy or satisfied or successful. And so I think a lot of the work that I like to do, and especially around body image things, is, well, how do we get ourselves to at least to a place of neutral, if not to a place of positivity about our bodies? And that body positive idea or body neutral idea doesn't preclude also doing work if we want to do work, but that starting from a place of neutral or positive is going to then redesign, rewire the nervous system to actually experience the success that we get when we do, if we do get to whatever size or weight or level of income that we want. So it's really important, I think, that's one of the components of when I'm working with people specifically, I mean, with everything really is, well, what are the things right now that we can be grateful for, that are working, that are positive to us so that we're training the nervous system to feel it right here, right now, without having to become anything else. That is so interesting because it sounds like a wonderful place to be. And I find myself thinking, wow, like I think I've spent so much of my life not feeling that neutrality. I've been feeling so much of that negativity, especially around the body. Like I had this kind of flashback to my younger self and a lot of the ideas that were in my head about my body. And sometimes that makes me feel so sad, not just for myself, but for others. Because again, I think that there's a lot of people that have experienced so much at childhood that has kept them in that negative state of mind about themselves, that just getting to a place of neutrality sounds wonderful. Like it's like maybe positivity feels so far away that there's just a yearning to get neutral. That's how I feel about my body, I think. And I've never really thought about it that way. But that phrase body neutrality has really felt appealing to me because Sometimes even positivity, I have kind of a negative association with it. And I think for the female gender, there's been a lot of mixed messages around our bodies, right? Because positive is also not very clear and that seems to differ. Like what we believe to be positive may not even feel 
right for our bodies because positivity tends to be emphasized on a certain body weight or a certain body size or shape. That's also changing, right? Culturally, there are different messages around like what looks good. So if you associate it with good being positive, then that starts to feel very confusing. But if what society's viewpoint are are what's a good body, if that doesn't match up to what you're even able, physically able to achieve, like if you can never be a certain size because your bone structure is is getting in your way or your genetics, no matter what you do, or maybe your age and all these different factors that might truly prohibit you within reasonable measure to get to that size, I think neutrality starts to feel like the goal more than positivity, if that makes sense. Yeah, that absolutely does. And I have worked with a bunch of people where it's just getting to neutral is that, right? So that it doesn't take up so much space in the day. I read a statistic where it said women will body monitor themselves every 30 seconds, every 30 seconds. Like we'll check our hair. Is somebody looking at me? We'll pull on our stomachs. And to think about the amount of bandwidth that takes. Whereas if we can get to neutral, that frees up so much space to actually do the things that are meaningful and important. (laughs) But I also wanted to share with you, because when you were sharing about getting to body neutral, so I, I do these naked photo shoots, naked project. And that is so interesting. And because it's often uncomfortable to get naked in front of some, not a lot of my clients do it, but I have had some strangers come and do it. So that, as you can imagine, would be quite uncomfortable to get naked in front of people. But the beautiful thing is within 45 minutes to one hour, it'll be one woman at a time for the photo shoots, come in, there'll usually be some uncomfortableness with even taking off robes or anything like that and just feeling very shy and just wanting to cover and having women go through the process of feeling that, like feel that covering or feel if you're ashamed, feel that shame. It's there. That feeling is a valid feeling. The story we're making up, oh, I feel shame because of my body, that can be examined. The feeling of shame is valid because it's there, right? And so feel that shame, feel that wanting to hide or feel whatever it is that you're feeling. And then through the process, eventually the women usually get much more comfortable. And there was this one woman, the very first photo shoot I ever did, I think she was in her fifties when we did the photo shoot. And I asked her, show me what your beautiful looks like. And she broke out in tears and she said, I've never thought of myself as beautiful. And so it was a moment of recognition, acknowledgement that she's never had that thought about herself. But the beautiful thing is, well, now you're aware of that. Now you felt the emotions around not feeling beautiful, and now you're able to release it. And then from that position, then we started, okay, well, maybe you don't know what beautiful looks like. Why don't we explore that? And so now we start putting our bodies in the different positions. Does this feel it? Does it feel like this? Does it feel like this? How does it feel? And so within this process, you go from feeling shame or wanting to hide or anxiety or whatever it is to usually some sort of emotional release, which creates more space in the system. 
and then into, okay, I may not know what my beautiful looks like, but here I am, I'm going to explore it. And maybe I don't get there today, but now I've created neural pathways and now my brain knows, oh, wait, well, what does it look like? So now we've just taught it something. So I think that's not to say for everyone to do naked photo shoots unless they're called to do it, but (laughs) but there are steps that can be taken that allow us to actually authentically feel the feelings that our bodies hold without repressing them, without denying them, without avoiding or distracting from them. And then that creates more space and more bandwidth to start recreating, well, what do we want to feel like? What do we want to believe about ourselves? And this is not talk therapy. It's I'm actually doing it with my body. I'm actually teaching my body, showing my body how to do this. I love doing those photo shoots because it's really such a profound experience for me as the person who's created them. And I've done them too. I've been naked in front of the camera with everyone and for the participants. And it's just such a beautiful process. And also, I think, to what you were talking about earlier, this connection. When we do these photo shoots, there's a sense of sisterhood that you don't know you're going to get when you go in. But by the time you're naked in front of six or seven other women and crying and laughing and everyone's like, you're so beautiful, you leave there having this sense of sisterhood. It's really interesting hearing you talk about this because I really resonated with the naked photo shoots when I was exploring your website. And there is something so majestic about a black and white photo shoot and the lighting and the way that the body is represented in new ways. Because I think photos have been really interesting for us as humans, right? Especially in the past five plus years, there are so many people that, especially with women feeling over-sexualized through photos whenever their skin is being shown. And so for me, that's been confusing. And there's also the confusion of how you just show yourself in an image. And I'm actually at a point where I'm not even sure how I want to show up in front of the camera anymore, which has been a really odd thing for me, given that I've done so much on camera. I mean, video is very different for me. I feel very comfortable with that. But a still photo, I've noticed a lot of discomfort recently. And I think what I'm realizing in this moment is I feel confused about what it means for me to show up on camera, how I do it for myself versus for other people. And that goes back to the social media side of it. And my thought process is getting here because I've done a few artistic nude photo shoots about 10 years ago. I did one that was similar to the shoot that you have done or the photos I saw on your website. And it was interesting because it was a male photographer and I really did a lot of research on him to see like, am I comfortable being naked around this man and what is he going to do with these images? But the reason I decided to do this shoot is because he was like doing it as a very artistic exploration of the body, not like, oh, you're a naked woman. I'm going to capitalize on your nakedness. I'm going to objectify you, you know? And it was really neat the way that he was looking at the body, almost as if it was a landscape of mountains or something. Like the photos he took of me were like of the curves of certain part and the angles he put me in. I remember like it was a really cool experience versus I've done photo shoots where I felt like I was kind of being used as an object to 
look mm-hmm. sexy. And that was a bit conflicting because there was part of me, I did like a year long process of doing a photo shoot almost every month with a different photographer. And I remember how it was such an interesting exploration of myself and how I looked, but I felt confused about why I was doing it. And I've noticed that a lot over the past 10 years on social media of just feeling confused about photos of myself, confused about how other people take photos of themselves. And I wonder how many people feel unsure. It's like we want to show up as ourselves, but we also have a lot of pressure to show up as a particular way. Like going back to the body monitoring, I think specifically women or people who identify as women feel a lot of pressure because it's all about perception. It's like, I want to show up to kind of control the way someone perceives me. So I'm going to Mm -hmm. do certain angles. I'm going to put maybe makeup on, do my hair, wear my clothes a certain way. I might use filters to adjust myself. I might edit myself literally through a program like Photoshop to adjust the way that I look so that I can control other people's perceptions of me and simultaneously adjust myself to look the way that I want to look, which may not be the reality of how I look. And I think that's very complex, right? Well, so the interesting part is, and I think this relates to the photo shoots, but it also relates to a lot of the work I do is so that wanting to filter the self in terms of how you're going to be seen. That's the narrative, right? That's what we, in the photo shoots, in the work, in the healing work, we get away from the narrative. I don't give a fuck how you want to show up. Not that I don't care how you want to show up in the world. I do want you to show up in the world as you, not as your conditioned masked self. And so when I say, I don't give a fuck about how you show up, it's that part. I want to take those masks off and move them off to the side. And there's, of course, there are moments where the protection and the masks are useful. But in general, we start, when we begin to identify with those masks, that's when it becomes problematic, right? I need to be X, Y, and Z size in order to be loved. No, that's not true at all. Now, we've created a condition where we think this is us, and that's not the truth. This is us inside of here. This essence is us. And so I think that that's a lot of the work, again, whether it's photo shoot or whether it's healing stuff, is the who are you behind all of those masks? Who are you behind all of those parts that want to determine how other people see you, right? Those are the ones that, again, useful in some capacities for sure. But when you think that's who you are, that's when I'm going to choke you out. With love, with lots of love. (laughs) You know, sometimes people need some tough love. (laughs) And I think that's the work, right? That's the work is like, it's not those masks and those perceptions that we're trying to control or that we're using to protect ourselves. That's not us. That's a protection. That's a mask. So let's get to who we are underneath all of that. And then that's that connection we're talking about. It's like, oh, I just touched myself just now, not all of these masks that are protecting me. I'm so glad that you circled back to connection. And this is very timely as I've been exploring this a lot on my own, but also on the podcast, how I'm in the process of doing a lot of unmasking and it feels very uncomfortable at times. 
I've wanted to do this so much because I know that the only reason I'm putting on a mask is for other people. And that's felt so out of alignment. And I've done a lot of that because it is, to your point uh, in another section about this coping, the survival. Like I have been taught that in order to get what I need, which could be money, right? Like in order to make money to be successful, I need to show up differently than who I am. So that requires a mask. Or I need to shape myself to become that mask. And this is, I think, where some of the disordered eating starts to come into play. Like I mostly struggled when I was in high school and college. And so that was a very different stage of my life where I think a lot of people are just trying to figure out who they are at that age, right? So the way that we mask as a teenager in early 20s is very different than later in life. But as I moved into my working career outside of college, there was just constant, you got to be this in order to get that. You've got to do it this way in order to succeed. And I've always found myself feeling incredibly frustrated by that. It's like, I don't want to change who I am at the core, but it feels like everybody on the outside is saying, change, change, change. Be this type of person so that you can get the relationship that you want. Because I date men. If you want to be with a man, he wants this. So you've got to look like this. We look at this era that we're in right now with dating of it's all photos and the pressure that everyone feels if they're on these sites to show up. Okay, I want to curate the images that I put on my social media profile or my dating profile in order to attract this type of person. I think I want who's also, so we're both showing up as our mass selves. Mm -hmm. So how Mm -hmm. do we even know if we're going to connect on that deep level that all of us yearn for? So the frustration I felt is that the masks are not only forcing us to be someone who we're not, we're actually getting in our way because how can we connect if everybody's walking around wearing masks? Right. And that's exactly the work. So as you were sharing, I wanted to, I keep talking about this kind of this narrative that we attach things to, but if we get to the root of things, so let me just explain that a little bit. So when we're kids, we have, I mean, outside of like food and home and all that stuff, we have two primary needs. We have connection, right? We need to be connected to our caregivers in a very real way. Like if we don't have caregivers, we're most likely not going to survive. And that means they protect us physically, emotionally, psychologically, and we have authenticity. So we have these two needs. We need to be authentic and we need to create this or maintain this connection. However, as children, most of us get the message that in order to maintain this connection, we need to be a certain way. Sometimes it's because the household is abusive or neglectful, but other times it might be like mom might say, oh, big girls don't do that or something along that, along those lines. So then we get the message that if we want to cry, but we want mom's connection and we want mom to love us, well, we can't cry because then mom's going to withdraw her love. Now, that may not be true. Mom might most likely won't withdraw her love, but our little girl brains or a little boy or little anything brains pick that up and we become those people who people please or think we have to be a certain way in order to receive love or to be successful. And so I think when we're looking at these things, what we really 
should be working towards is to understand where that little part of us took that role. Like when that part took that on, right? Was it when you were four? And if it was when you were four, then what does that four-year-old need? Well, when that four-year-old has the impulse to be a certain way in relation to a certain person, mostly likely that four-year-old feels scared because they don't want to lose mom or dad's love. So it's very simple when we understand where these feelings or where these narratives start from. Does that all make sense? It does. Yeah. When we think of these masks that we all have to take on, although they're playing out in our adult lives, when we recognize, oh, that's because when I was four years old and my mom got angry at me because I broke the toy, I realized if I break this, I have to be perfect or else mom's going to be angry. And then I'm going to be scared because she doesn't love me, which is not necessarily true, but that's how I perceived it because I'm only four. (laughs) Doesn't that just make you want to go back in time and hug your four-year-old self? That's how I feel. And it's whenever I think about these things, I realize like how crucial it is for children to have a self-aware adults in their lives. It's like for the listener thinking, well, we can't go back in time for ourselves, but how can we be present now for other children in our lives, whether they're our own or part of our family mm-hmm. or friends? You know, I don't have kids, but many of my friends do. And it's like, I have this mm-hmm. desire to just like show up and be so present for them and so loving and positive. And I find myself even like thinking about every little thing because children are so sensitive and they do take in much more than we even realize. And it's actually a wonderful opportunity whenever I interact with a child to like just notice that human sensitivity that I also think as adults, we become so tough. Like we have all these layers that a lot of us hide that deep sensitive soul within us that as kids, we probably didn't hide because we didn't train ourselves to do that quite yet. I just want to make a slight adjustment to what you said, which is that we can't go back and I don't remember the exact words. We can't go back and like redo our childhood, which is true. We can't go back and redo our childhood, but we can start working with our inner child, which does change how that part reacts and therefore how we as adults show up. I'd love to hear more about that because I actually don't know if I've ever done any formal inner child work. I hear a lot about it and I understand it, but maybe because I haven't done it myself that I don't fully know what that process is like. So when you talk about it in that way, what does that look like for an adult who wants to do that work? So one of the ways that we get to that inner child is a process called compassionate inquiry, which is a technique, I guess you would call it, that was developed by Gabor Mate. So I did a training with him, a professional training, and I think his method is very good at getting to that inner child. And then there's other methods that help you deal with the inner child stuff, but his is a great process to get to it. So how one would do that would be, for example, if I was working with someone and they came and their intention is, I want to explore my body dysmorphia. So that's a clear intention. And then I would ask, what was the most recent thing that happened? Well, this morning I looked in the mirror and I noticed that I gained a little weight and I just got so 
disgusted with myself. So now, and it's a process, obviously, I'm just kind of giving these answers. I would really let the person that I'm working with come up with what they're feeling is. But so disgusted with my body. Okay, where in your body do you sense that disgust? Well, I sense it in my belly. Okay, can we be with that for a moment or two? And maybe yes, maybe no, depending on what they say. But let's say they say yes. Okay, now I might ask them, when was the first time this sense of disgust came up for you? And almost always, without, (laughs) I think probably 95% of the time, Well, I remember being at home and I was hanging out with my brother and he pinched my belly and he made a mooing sound. Okay, so now we're at the inner child. So this sense of disgust was created in relation to this experience you had as a child. Okay, and how old were you? I was three years old or let's say five years old. So, okay, you're five years old. Now, what would a five-year-old want? Or what would they feel at that time? Well, I felt scared because my brother was picking on me and my parents weren't there to comfort me. Okay. Now, what does that mean then? If that child is scared, what would you do for a five-year-old child? Well, if a five-year-old child is scared, I would hug them. I would offer them like a hug and I would say it's okay and whatever it is, but mostly it's not going to be a verbal thing, right? Because a five-year-old is not responding to, it's okay, you're a beautiful child. They're going to respond to the holding, hugging, and the being with them. And so right there is a, again, I just made that up in my head, but that's basically the trajectory of how it would go. It's we start with an intention we get to a recent thing that happened, we connect with the emotion, we trace that emotion back to its origin. And then once we get to the origin, inevitably, we're at the inner child. And then based off of what that inner child is feeling, whether it's fear or shame or anger or whatever it is, then we work with that emotion. So that's a really profound process. I think it really allows me as the person who's working with someone and the person who's going through the process to see how the emotion has been present the whole time. And then we're just using the emotion to create narrative around it, right? It's like, I felt ashamed. And then when I became a teenager, it was ashamed because of my body. And then when I got older, it was ashamed because I didn't have the job I wanted. And then as I grew up, I was ashamed because my relationship failed those are all stories, but the underlying emotion is really the driver, right? So that's back to our minds shape the world. Our mind, our feeling of shame is shaping what's happening on the outside and the narrative that we're telling ourselves. Wow. It's so powerful to think of it that way. And it's interesting that I don't feel like a lot of people talk about this. It sounds like so clear as a way of doing this healing, but the way that you're discussing this feels a bit foreign, not in the sense that I haven't heard it before, but just that I don't hear it enough. I don't hear it regularly. Mm -hmm. I don't hear people talking about their sense of self in that way. And I think that as a society, it's a bit lost on us that what we are seeing is based on a lot of these core experiences, what we're experiencing in the world. Because it feels like so many people assume that their perception is the right perception, right? Like my belief system is the only way. This is the right way. 
you know, if you're not with me, you're against me. And that's also worth talking about with you too. I'm really curious how you feel given this time that we're in where we have war developing, we have so many different opinions about what's gone on during the pandemic. But then on a day-to-day basis, there seems there's always some controversy in the news, whether it's in Hollywood, whether it's in sports, whether it's in politics. It's like, if you open up any website about the news, if you open up social media, if you turn on the TV, there's going to be like almost this sense of, did this person do something right or wrong? Like, are you with them? Or do you agree with them? It's like, I feel that way when I open up TikTok, for example, where I spend a lot of time. And it's just so frequently about taking sides. And that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like taking sides. And sometimes I wonder, is that my coping mechanism? Like, okay, don't take sides. It's safer to be in the gray area. But I feel like part of me doesn't want to take sides because I'm seeking connection. And to me, the gray area feels like the safest place to get connection because I don't want it to be us versus them. So how do you feel in the current state of things? Do you perceive it as being, it's like the lack of unity. That's what I see right now. I definitely do believe that there's lack of unity. I think the big thing is lack of communication. It seems as if everyone's just yelling at each other and nothing ever happens. (laughs) Like no points are ever really taken in if you're yelling them at me, even if you're 100% right. Once you yell at me, my nervous system is like, (laughs) or my nervous system is like, let's go. So it's this inability to listen without judgment. One of the things that you kind of talked a little about just now, and I want to point it out for your listeners and for you too, is that in that process that I just took you through where intention, what just happened, one of the steps in there is what happened. When I ask somebody what happened, I ask for the facts. So they might say, well, I walked in I saw this, I said this to this person and they judged me. I was like, that's a perception. What did they say? Well, they said, hey, can you put that cup in the sink? Okay, that's the fact. That is not a perception. So now we can make the distinction with what are the facts and where are your perceptions, right? And then the other part of that is also separating perception from feeling, right? So this person walked in, they told me to put the cup, the mug in the sink. I felt judged. Well, judge is not actually a feeling. It's a perception. So what was the feeling that was present? Well, I felt, and usually people have a hard time distinguishing perception and feeling like I feel alone or I felt abandoned. Abandoned is also not a feeling. You might feel scared. You might feel grief. You might feel shame but abandoned is a perception. So now we can start kind of sussing out, like what are the facts that happened? What are you making it mean with your judgment? And how did that make you feel? And what you'll notice is whatever you perceive to happen is usually the worst case scenario for you. Meaning if you felt like you were being judged but maybe the person just wanted the dishes done, or maybe they were having friends over and they didn't want to have mugs everywhere. Like there's lots of other possibilities, but our minds pick the one that is the most painful for us. 
And that's also based off of childhood stuff, right? So it's interesting to watch this on social media because people are not responding to the facts of what's going on. They're responding to what they perceive is going on. And they're getting angry. The anger might be valid, but why they're getting angry is not really related to what's going on. It's related to like all the baggage that has led them to this point. And that's another kind of moment that I'd like to share and point out is if you're emotionally charged, I would say 95% of the time where you're emotionally charged by something that has baggage to it, meaning it's coming from your childhood somewhere. So that's a really good way to start observing the self. I'll give you an example. My partner, well, this was before COVID and never happened, but we were going to Canada. I was going to go camping with my friend. He was going to do a motorcycle ride and then we were going to meet up. But before that, we were all going to take the car together. And he was like, well, I just started motorcycling. Maybe I'll like ride my bike and meet you guys. And now my nervous system automatically went into you're abandoning me. Now, he's not actually abandoning me, but my little girl self was like, oh, you don't want to ride in the car with us? You want a motorcycle ride? You're abandoning me. Again, I know this consciously is not true, but my little girl self, who has all the baggage, reacted in a way that she was scared. Her perception was that he was abandoning me. And then I shut down. And so I can tell when I shut down, because that's a nervous system response, an automated nervous system response that I have, I know, oh, that's something from a long time ago that has nothing to do with today. Because all he said was, I want to ride my motorcycle. (laughs) And I created this whole story of him abandoning me. And does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, it does. And it's so relatable. And it's interesting too, because it's like, how do we connect with one another if everybody's perceiving things differently? Especially, there's also the difference between you connecting with your partner who hopefully you would be able to say, hey, my inner child saying this, let's just talk it out. But what if it's like in a professional setting or with a stranger? You're probably not going to say, let's do some (laughs) inner child work or let's talk about what's going on (laughs) with our nervous system, which honestly, I would love to have that conversation with a stranger, but likely they would be a little bit weirded out if I said that. So how do we connect with somebody if we don't have the opportunity to kind of talk through our perceptions? I mean, in that instance, there has to be both parties need to be willing. I mean, that's the first part of it in any sort of negotiation or any conflict resolution, both parties have to be willing to listen and understand. And you may not agree, but if you can listen and understand, and again, take like, see what the facts are and see what you're making it mean, then we can start getting to a resolution. But as long if both parties are not willing, you're not going to get anywhere. And if you're not willing to separate the facts that happen from your perception, then again, we're not going to get anywhere, but there's a process to it. And that's like one of the first steps is really just like, what are the facts here? What are you making it mean? What is that feeling? And when you do that, because then you could start seeing, okay, this happened. I made it mean you're judging me and now I'm angry and now I'm yelling at you and now I'm yelling at you and you're getting defensive and you're yelling at me, but really The only thing that happened is I walked in and I asked you to put your mug in the sink. Why are we yelling at each other? (laughs) 
So it has to be two willing parties. And like, we have to break down those different components. But again, can you do that? I don't know. I've not ever seen it be done on social media. (laughs) And again, in a work setting, absolutely, that can be done. In fact, that's probably the best in a work scenario when there is difficulty to have a third party mediator, because that's also to have a third party just kind of reflect, mirror back what they're hearing and seeing. That's very helpful. But on social media, I don't know that I've ever seen that happen. And that's a good point because that might help frame social media's place in our lives because I feel like social media has become so dominant that people rely on it to connect, to find out what's going on. Like another great example is Facebook and Instagram. Like so many people will catch up with their friends just by looking at what their friends are posting. It's like a shortcut, like, oh, I don't have to call you. I can just go check in with you on your life based on what pictures and videos you're posting these days. But (laughs) there's so many layers happening there. Like, first of all, your perception about what this person is doing, but that person's also in a way, whether they're aware of it or not, controlling the narrative by what they share. And we hear so much about the highlight reel. And I think a lot of us are aware that social media is generally a highlight reel. It's generally only showing a very limited or controlled view of what's going on in someone's life. But I think it's become so prevalent in our lives over the past 10 plus years that most people don't even step back to really take that in. Like, oh, I can't possibly connect with someone just by my perception of what they're posting online. But I think that we've been a bit conditioned to do that. I certainly have, even though I think about this like every single day. I still find myself going on and I'm like, oh, I wonder what so-and-so is doing. I like log into Facebook. I see what their posts are. And then I'm like, okay, cool. I know what's going on with their life. Like my brain still does that. I have to be very conscious and step back and go, "Mm, I'm probably not seeing the full picture. I should probably call them or get together with them if I really want to know what's happening in their life. And I think it makes me uncomfortable about social media these days. And the same thing is true when you're using it for business as I do. I I feel deeply uncomfortable because of that very thing. It's like, I just don't want to wear the mask. But then if I take off the mask, I don't even know what to post anymore. Great example on Instagram. I post from this for the podcast has a very like structured quotes. That's very different from my personal account. I posted a photo a few days ago for the first time in like a month or so, which felt like this huge span of time on social media. Like, wow, you haven't posted for a month. Are you okay? So I feel almost this pressure that I need to update my friends and my connections on Instagram, right? So I put up this post and I'm like, wow, I really thought in that moment I was being authentic. But when I stepped back and looked at it, I'm like, I took a photo and I took a few different versions. Then I picked which one I was going to post and I adjusted the lighting slightly so that would look a little brighter and more vibrant. Then I went through and like crafted out the caption and edited a little bit. And I'm like, this still feels like a mask. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I feel so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But if this is the way we connect these days, it's like I have to still have to do it because if I don't do it, am I connected? Do you resonate with that? Like, do you struggle with these things on social? Like, what is your personal relationship with social media right now? 
So it's interesting. I think in the last probably year and a half, I kind of was like fed up with social media. (laughs) So I, I think in the last year and a half, I've maybe posted 10 times. And same thing where I'm like, I should really start posting things again. And I'm like, why? My life is not any, like, it's not actually any better to keep posting. I mean, yes, I do like you get comments and all that stuff and that could be fun, but it's like very temporary. It doesn't really mean anything. So here's another thing that I find that's interesting with social media, right? So a lot of the work I do is around body stuff and self-perception, all that stuff. And I've worked with a lot of women and some men even to like shift the image they have of their body and to do all that stuff. And so I've seen a lot of the people that I've worked with post pictures of themselves, like body positive things like this is me, this is I love it. I am just embracing themselves, which I think is beautiful. And then when it comes to me, though, I feel like it's an uncomfortable place because I'm like, what am I doing this for? Am I doing it because I'm celebrating myself? Am I doing it for attention? Am I doing it because I know if I put this picture out, I know that there's going to be people that are going to like it strictly because of what I look like. It's very uncomfortable for me in that way, even though so much of the work I do is helping people embrace who they are now. So even for me, it's this weird like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What is the like underlying drive? And in essence, for me, like I know that one of my things is trying to get validation. So as a younger person, it was because of my body and how I looked. And then it's also based off of like the degrees and certificates that I have. So I'm like, it's the seeking of validation undercurrent. So I know that even if I say this is to celebrate myself, that there's also that little part of me that's seeking validation and that's a mask, right? And so I'm like, okay, I'm not, not going to post that because I know that's just feeding into my coping strategy. That's feeding into my defense. So that's where I am with that. And then also to get back to your point of the connection, I think the thing that was coming up for me is when you're making friends, when you're becoming friends or when you're in long-term friendships, what creates the bond is, yes, partly the good stuff, right? It's like, we love hanging out. We love laughing. We love doing all that stuff. But also is that sharing of those intimacies that you wouldn't share with everyone else. And that's what actually creates that deep sense of trust and bonding is when I can share the ugliest or the scariest or the most insecure parts of myself with you and you say, I love you and you're welcome here. And it doesn't matter. I mean, maybe not in those words, but basically that's the sense, right? And that's what creates the intimacy and that's what creates the connection. And that's what creates those friendships. But if you're only seeing the highlight reel on social media, you're never actually getting that. So Well, it gives a somewhat of a sense of connection. It's not the real connection that we as humans, and I would argue that probably lots of other animals really want. We want that deep sense of, I know I can trust you because I've shared my most intimate details with you and you've completely still accepted me with unconditional love. And that's not what you're getting on social media. 
Yes. Could not agree more. I mean, I am so glad that we talked about that because I'm constantly processing that and hearing the way that you reflected back some of the things I've said in your own experiences is just like such a great reminder. And it's tough. Yeah. I think it's also important to keep in mind that yeah, social media is a little bit different for each person, depending on why they're using it. What makes it really hard for me and, and likely you too, Stacey, is like there's so much pressure to use it from a business standpoint. But my business is so deeply connected to my personal life and my heart. And like, I don't see it a disconnect between who I am personally and professionally. Like it's, I want it to be the same person. It hasn't always been. And that's part of the transition I'm at now is I used to feel like two separate people online. It was like the personal Whitney and then the professional Whitney. And recently I'm like, I don't want to live my life that way. It's like there's that new TV show called Severance on Apple TV. I don't know if you've heard of this, Stacey, but the whole concept is about people that get an operation so that they don't remember their business life. And I've only watched like one episode of it, but I'm really intrigued because like people are, the concept is like they want to be able to fully separate their work from their personal life. And I think a lot of us, well, I actually don't know. Do we want that or do we really deep down not want that? Would people in general, and I'm curious what you think, Stacey, do you think people want to feel disconnected at all in their life? Like, do we want to numb ourselves? Do we want to create different personas? Do we want to wear masks or do you think people deep down all want to feel authentic and whole and themselves all of the time? I believe that people want to feel authentic all of the time. And if there is a time when they want to disconnect from work, it's because it's related to who they think they need to be. And that creates distress in the body. I think that I mean, it could also be an indication that maybe you're in the wrong job, <laughs> which is valid. That's a good signal then. <laughs> but I think if people listened more to who they are and how they want to be, that life would incorporate all of it. It wouldn't just be like, oh, this is who I have to be at work, but this is who I really am. Well, you want to be who you are all the time. <laughs> and that's going to be, I think, much more fulfilling. I mean, can you imagine if you're doing eight hours a day, five days a week of something that is not in line with who you are, you're spending most of your life not connecting with yourself and connecting with whatever masks you have to put on to be that role. And I think that's a, I mean, <laughs> that sounds like a horrendous life. <laughs> it does. And it's certainly not that simple. And I think it's also right. important to note that not everybody does have a fulfilling job because there's so many circumstances that, you know, and it's sad because it's also not an individual issue as much as it's like a systemic issue. Like, unfortunately, Right now, at least in the United States, like with capitalism being the way it is, some people need to do things to make ends meet. And it's not always going to be about fulfilling yourself. It truly comes down to survival. And so I don't want to brush over over that. I think I used to actually, Stacey, and I've been really working on not assuming that everybody can do what they love all of the time. But wouldn't it be nice if more jobs encourage that? What if there was more work centered around our skills and our purpose and like 
that's where it needs to start is in these corporations that are connecting more to the humanity of somebody, not just using them as a cog in the wheel. So that's a whole nother conversation, but I'm glad that we touched upon it. (laughs) I also would like to add, because I do completely agree with you that not everyone can live their purpose and that obviously there are people that are working to survive. I think in those instances, there's the hope anyway, and I don't know how realistic it is, but the hope is that there is something that they can get out of it, whether maybe it's just a sense of pride in something that they do, even if it's not what they want to be doing, but that there's a sense of pride that like I'm doing something or that there's at least something that can be gleaned from it, some sense of like self-respect. Again, like, I mean, I've worked the gap for seven bucks an hour when I was a kid. Like I've done all those things. And I mean, I hated it. (laughs) I'm not gonna like sugarcoat it. But the days that I remember it being better was when I could say, okay, I woke up. I did that today. I did that well. I feel like I respect myself for doing that well. So again, I don't want to minimize it any of the struggles people have, but there are things also that maybe we can kind of glean no matter what the circumstances might be. I love that you added that. And absolutely, because it's tough, but we can also, to your point, our minds are really shaping how we see the world. And so can we take control over perceptions about everything that we do, like the work that we're doing? We could perhaps choose to view it as unpleasant, unbearable, and unfulfilling, or Can we find that glimmer of hope, even if it's just a little small piece of our work, but could we focus on that and see how that shifts the experience, at least in the temporary? So I think that is such a beautiful message that you share in your work. You share so much in what you're doing, Stacey. I'm so grateful that you came on to share some perspectives and tips for people. And I would love to share with them what is the next step if somebody wants to explore more about what you do, where do they go after listening to this episode? And where does that lead them into connecting with you deeper? So they can always visit my website, which is stacyberman.com, S-T-A-C-Y-B-E-R-M-A-N. I almost forgot how to spell my last name there. <laughs> or on Instagram is Stacy Berman PhD. So you can read a bit about the work that I do. I have some really cool things in the making. So there'll be other possibilities of connecting with me in the future, but those are the primary ways for right now. Wonderful. And I will link to those both in the show notes. There's a full transcript. There will eventually be the video here. Everything is in one place at wellevator.com. So you can easily get in touch with Stacy. For those that haven't visited my website where that's all contained, it's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in the podcast section. And Stacy, there are so many wonderful things that you've said. So if anyone wants to go back and read it or find a certain point in this episode, you can easily do that there. And Stacy, I loved this conversation. Your viewpoints mm-hmm. are just so nourishing to me. I feel uplifted and I'm just, all these ideas are in my head now. So you've really brought out a lot with me and I hope for the listener as well. So thank you for taking the time and doing the work that you do, Stacey. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.